Welcome to a series of podcasts for the Oxford Strategic Leadership Programme. I'm Tracy Camilleri. In the tradition of the OSLP, we'll explore leadership through multiple lenses, looking at culture, creativity, language and power, lateral thinking, change and the challenges facing women leaders. Against a global backdrop of so much strain and pressure, we hope to bring you a reason for some time out for reflection. I'm delighted to be talking to Margaret Heffernan. Margaret's got an extraordinary range of achievements as entrepreneur, CEO, writer, professor, and many of you will know her TED Talks watched by millions, and has just published a new book, Uncharted, and we'll be getting to that in the podcast. But welcome, Margaret. It's lovely to have you with us. Well, thanks for inviting me. Where are you speaking from in the world at the moment? I'm speaking from deepest, darkest Somerset, where I have locked down, which, as it turns out, is a perfectly lovely place to be. Oh, yes. Well, I'm in Norfolk, so I can empathise with the rolling fields that you must be seeing out of your window. One of the things I've always really admired about you is your forthrightness, your ability to tell it how it is, I suppose, a kind of moral courage in the present. And one of the things I wanted to ask you was, have you always been like that? Or, or did you learn to be so, so brave in how you express yourself? It's a good question. I mean, I think I've definitely got uh, braver with age, either braver or more enraged. And I often find rage quite productive and creative. But I think probably the answer is I've mostly been like this as an adult. And the reason I say that is not because I've been paying attention But I ran into somebody the other day, well, the other day, probably several months ago, who I had worked with, I think my second job. So this would have been when I was in my early 20s. And I was working as a script editor in BBC Radio Drama. And he said, God, all I remember is just how brave you were fighting for the writers that you believed in. And I have no memory of this at all, right? So I guess it is something I've always done. I think I would like to think in the meantime, I've become a a much better listener, um, which has been a very big development for me in the last 10 years. I mean, this sounds ridiculous, but actually a really fantastic discovery. But no, I think I, I also have a sense, quite a strong sense that we're not here forever. We have a limited amount of time in which to make the best of what we've got. People like myself have got the very best the world has to offer. Um, And I have a kind of moral responsibility to use it. And it's not for me. But if I can help articulate what I know many other people without my power or profile have, then that seems to me a really useful thing to be doing. That's a great answer, Margaret. Can I take you a few sentences back, one of the things you just said that interested me was your point about listening. And I imagine that, well, I know, in fact, that you're doing a lot of speaking at the moment, particularly around your book, but we're living in odd times. Um, as you said, you're in sort of lockdown in Somerset, I'm locked down in Norfolk. And I wonder, who are you really listening to at the moment? Who are you paying attention to? Well, I always listen for what are people not talking about, um, which may sound like a backward way of answering your question. But I, I mean, I often sit in meetings thinking, 
what isn't being said. And so, you know, this, much of the stuff I'm hearing, I think is pretty generic and banal, you know, offices, no offices, working from home, not working from home. Um, you know, will it be over? Will it not be over? Um, I'm much more interested in actually how difficult it is for people to understand the experience that they've had. Most of the conversations I hear about the pandemic are pretty generic, although when you start digging into it, everybody's experiences are different. I think people feel quite uncomfortable talking about how frightened they've been or how lonely they've been. I'm interested in how quickly we adopt some kind of um, easy-to-swallow narratives which aren't very true. Hmm. Um, and I wonder, you know, the question I'm asking myself is, will we adopt those and they will become our truth? Or as we get more distance from the event, will we feel more comfortable thinking through and articulating the complexity of emotions that people have felt? And one of the things I'm thinking about in that as you know, during the Second World War, there was this fantastic project called Mass Observation where all kinds of um, perfectly ordinary people were asked to keep diaries. And their diaries through the war are full of, you know, fear, loneliness, heartbreak, misery, depression. And yet the public narrative post-war was, you know, these were the, some of the greatest times in our lives. We felt such a sense of solidarity. We we're all in it together. You know, we were united and determined. And um, I've always been very interested in how people rewrite their own history. Mm -hmm. And I feel that what I'm hearing at the moment is some kind of on the spot rewriting. It's all actually very complicated. So let's come out with a sort of simple story in a nutshell. And so I just wonder what's going to happen to the true stories, whether they'll emerge. I suspect they'll emerge over time. But I think what I think is really happening is almost specifically what I'm not hearing. That's interesting. I mean, I think it's Dave Snowden talks about the kind of retrospective coherence of writing, writing the stories after the events when, as you say, in the present, things are so complicated and sad and difficult. And, and one of the things that struck me at the moment is that every day we're fed, you know, these graphs and statistics and numbers. And yet, and there is a kind of reaching back for old scripts, you know, sort of, oh, is it going to be like the flu pandemic or whatever, whatever. But there is a lack of a story here, um, a true story, as you say. Mm. And um, you're a great teller of stories that are exemplars. You're a great user of metaphors and things. Do you think it's the job of of leaders at the moment to try and grasp for what the story that needs to be told at the moment is? Well, I think the job for leaders at the moment is to try to have conversations with as many people as they can about what their lived experience of this period has been, because it isn't a single or a simple narrative. Um, and I don't think um, pulse surveys are going to quite capture that. I mean, I have quite a, an ambivalent attitude to narrative. You're absolutely right that um, I use stories a lot to illustrate the individual experience of change or uncertainty, for example. But I also have an awareness 
that stories often purvey a sense of inevitability. You know, that of course the story is going to end this way. And that I, of course, don't believe. (laughs) I don't believe that our future is determined. I don't think that we're data and that the, you know, the so-called geniuses of Silly Valley can take our data and tell us what's going to happen to us. I think that so much is unknown about individual life and choices and opportunities that actually narrative packages and makes tidy something that is not tidy. So I have huge regard for storytelling because it's actually how human beings remember things. But I think it's important for us as individuals as we lead our lives not to jump to narratively tidy conclusions about ourselves or about other people. And of course, I write about this specifically in Uncharted. You know, there's this belief out there that there are profiles of people and they may be gathered by Amazon or any sort of data gathering organization and you can comb through it for patterns and the patterns will foretell the future. And this is such a bad, dangerous idea, A, because the perfect data set is almost non-existent, but also because people change all the time. You know, probably one of the most profound discoveries in my lifetime is neuroplasticity. And so I am not the same person that I was 20 years ago, and I'm not the person that I'm going to be 20 years from now. So I think it's, it's important to use stories to hang on to ideas. But, you know, one of my friends who's in Uncharted, the novelist Sebastian Barry says, the thing you have to remember is that at any moment, everything can change. So I love stories, but I think we have to beware of narrative tidiness because I think Sebastian's right. I think at any moment, everything can change. On that point, at any moment, anything can change. And of course, this is absolutely the territory of your of your book, Margaret. But thinking about, I mean, both of us are involved in tertiary education and thinking about the next generation. You're a professor at Bath School of Management. How can we better educate the next generation for for readiness? Is it Hamlet who says the readiness is all rather than for for mastery or qualification or narrow specialism? How can we get better at that, do you think? Well, it's a very, very important, um, it's a very important question. When I was running my tech companies in the US, I had a very brilliant chief creative officer who once said to me, do you think when we advertise for positions, we could say that we're really looking for people who come from dysfunctional homes? (laughs) I said, I I think that's probably illegal. (laughs) But what she was driving at was this, that our experience in running the company was that when we hired sort of straight A students who'd gone to good schools and good universities and good graduate schools, and they'd always done really well, and pretty much nothing bad had ever, ever happened to them, that these turned out to be often quite poor employees in a very new industry where things changed all the time. And that when we had, when we hired people who had, you know, often quite um, complicated or varied uh, CVs, and sometimes some gaps where they might have stopped working for some reason, 
um, that these people were actually very flexible, very adaptive, and very, very creative. And my concern about the education system at the moment is not just that fewer than 50% of our children fail to get a C or above grade in GCSE, which is a mammoth failure uh, in English or math. It's that we're training kids by implication that for every question, there is one right answer. And if you get that one answer, you're clever. And if you don't, you're stupid. And that that's the same as thinking. And it isn't. It isn't anywhere near thinking. And so I think that in terms of, you know, what sort of education do we want for the future? We want education that absolutely is about thinking, thinking for oneself, thinking creatively with other people. A huge amount of education, which, of course, government routinely undervalue and underestimate, is about the social skills to work and live together harmoniously and creatively. But I think, you know, I think an education system that's fit for the future does one fundamental thing, which is it inculcates in people a love of learning and a capacity for learning. Because the truth is that, you know, never mind what Michael Gove or Dominic Cummings believes, the truth is we don't know the skills that the, the companies or organizations in the future will need. We don't know exactly how much of it is science or technology or humanities subjects. We don't know, we cannot predict exactly what facts, figures, and specific technical skills people will need. So, if we inculcate in people a great capacity for learning and a love of it, they will be lifelong learners. And that clearly is what we will need because I think the, you know, the future will be full of multiple industries that come and go and individuals will have to adapt, retrain, relearn to pursue opportunities, not just for economic reasons, but because you know, they spent 10 years in an industry and now want to learn something new. So I think, as usual, we are stuck with a 19th century education system. And that really hugely depresses me because I don't see it serving actually anybody. I mean, I completely agree with you. I mean, we, we spend quite a lot of time, of course, helping grown-ups, I suppose, to learn. I mean, people, uh, and you talk about this lifelong learning. And I know you as well as we spend quite a lot of time thinking about experiments. How do you prototype? How do you put, a, how do you put your foot in the water? How do you uh, learn by doing? How do you see a failure potentially as an asset because it's full of learning for you? And, you know, we've seen this, you know, it can happen incredibly, well, much more easily in business schools or in startups or in small organizations. It's somehow harder it seems to me to get a culture of experimentation in a sustainable way in very large organizations. I mean, have you seen such a culture sustained over periods of time in, in big institutions or organizations? And if so, you know, what's the secret source of that, Margaret? Yeah, I have seen some organizations where this is a lot easier than others. I think, you know, 
part of the problem here is that much of what we think of as management specifically impedes experimentation, creativity, and agency. So if you give people a whole bunch of KPIs and targets and goals and all sorts of incentives attached to that, you know, people will pretty much do what you tell them to do. And that's the problem. They won't do anything else. And so I guess the organizations I can think of, which are better than that, um, in, on the whole, people have quite a lot of freedom. It's pretty easy to speak up and say, hey, why don't we do such and such? Or wouldn't it be better if we did it this way than that way? Or I think we have a problem over here. Um, there are people where their desire to keep learning is encouraged and supported. So that, you know, if your specialist is water engineering, but you want to learn more about emerging green technologies for that, you can move from a senior position that speaks to your specialty to a junior position in which you can learn. So there are very flexible career paths within that kind of organization. So I think it can be done. And I've seen this in companies large and small. So I don't think it's an issue of scale. I think it is a, a matter of managers trusting that people won't use the freedom that they encounter in the business. And I think, you know, one of the things that I have found quite positive in this strange uh, pandemic period is the working from home experiment, which in itself I think is not that fascinating. But what's so interesting is that the big barrier to bosses letting people work from home when they wanted to, so flexible working, was that they didn't trust that people would actually work. Hmm. Now, I think this is kind of astounding. So you hire all sorts of people. You go to a lot of time and trouble to select them and, you know, and to create an environment in which they feel empowered and so on and so forth. And you don't trust them to do the work? Really? You think working from home is skiving? And so I think it's fantastic for bosses to learn that actually when people go home to work, guess what they do? They work. They work really well and often they work much better because they're not being interrupted by their managers. And, you know, what I would hope, because I'm a kind of a hopeless optimist, um, what I would hope is that managers would take away from this the lesson that actually, if you trust your people, you get better work from them. And so if you give them more freedom to speak up, to choose their own path within an organization, they will do better work. And that seems to me a fundamental lesson that many, many, many organizations that are still absolutely captivated by command and control still have to learn. Yeah, it seems extraordinary, and you put it like that, as if whole systems are designed for the 2% of us that are rats. I mean, there are always 2% that are rats. Yeah. Why would you design a whole system around that? Yeah. I can't talk to you, Margaret, without just asking you one kind of woman-related question, because I know you've thought about it and written about it quite a lot. And I suppose one of the questions I ask myself is, but if... I don't know if organizations and structures and processes and systems were from scratch set up by women and I know a lot of entrepreneurs actually are female mm -hmm. would they be different would they do things different and I wonder in your research have, have you have you 
you know, done any work on that? And yeah. uh, do you have any answers there? Yeah. So uh, the second book that I wrote was a book called How She Does It, um, which looked specifically at the 10.6 million companies in the United States that were majority owned or wholly owned by women. And I did this for a number of reasons. First of all, when I wrote my first book, which was about women's corporate careers, I encountered this data, which showed that this huge, huge group of companies was collectively more profitable than businesses on average, that these companies were more likely to last for longer than five years than businesses on average, and that they had created more jobs than businesses on average. And I thought, so it's incredible. We've had this cohort of 10.6 million businesses that are way more successful than businesses on average, and nobody is looking at them. So that's what the book was about. And really the question was, what is it these companies are doing that's so smart? And if we could find out, couldn't just anybody do that? And the answer turned out to be they were successful because women pretty much are the market. We determine or or define about 80% of consumer spending, about 60% of B2B spending. So we're super in tune with the market because we're it. So we have a much livelier sense of zeitgeist and what's coming. We're much more driven to run businesses that stand for something, often because women who start their own businesses really are setting out to prove something. So they're very mission-driven. Female leaders on the whole tend to think of, of leadership as orchestration, so power with rather than power over. They pay a great deal more attention to culture and to relationships. I had a sort of game I played with myself when I was doing the research, which is I'd go to visit companies owned and run by women. And I'd say to the CEO, I specifically want to meet with you, just you, so that we can have a conversation. And not one of them (laughs) ever met me without a senior leadership team in the room. In other words, and we often had a private conversation subsequently, but in other words, what they were saying is, look, the business is not just me. I may have started it. It may even be named after me, but it is very much more than me. So I thought that was quite telling. Um, Women's own businesses tend to do M&A better because it's much more relationship focused. So they're less deal driven. So the deals are less likely to fall apart. So, you know, if you take that study, uh, you know, as an answer to your question, I think, yes, if women were the majority of business leaders today, the business environment would be different. Hmm. And certainly there's quite a lot in the press at the moment about how female political leaders have handled content pretty well or or a bit better than some of their male counterparts. I mean, I think that's tricky because, you know, the sample size is sort of vanishingly small. Yeah, yeah. Um, And there may be a sort of confirmation bias, but more particularly, I think that who the leaders of a country are is only one part of the outcome. So a lot of it, I think, has to do with how much do the citizens trust government in general, right? I think that after Brexit, after Grenfell, after Windrush, the British people don't generally trust government to be competent or to be honest. So actually, no matter how you put 
into a leadership position in that context is going to have a really difficult time. You know, the erosion of trust is a costly, costly mistake. Um, I think also, you know, smaller countries are probably a little easier to run than big countries. And I think generally speaking, and I wrote about this in a bigger prize, there's a really fascinating feature of smaller countries, which is because they can't command the market, they know they don't have the economic clout to do so. They are typically more collaborative because they know they have to do well, they have to work well with other countries across the board. So I think, you know, that explains some of it. I think, you know, that in Germany, which is the exception, not being a small country, I think in Germany, actually having a scientist in charge is really interesting. Because one of the things I've really noticed in this period, and I keep meaning to write about it, but never have time, is there's all this conversation about the science. There is no such thing as the science. And I know this, not because I'm some sort of genius or a scientist, but because I live with scientists. You know, and my years of living with a scientist have shown me that science is a process and that what is known by science changes all the time. And I think that our understanding of science and the government's understanding of science um, has been poor, not because they've kind of picked and chosen what they've fancied, but because there's a sort of philosophical underpinning, which is actually, you know, science just isn't ideological and it doesn't behave according to what you want. Mm. Um, and I think that leaders and societies that can understand that are probably always going to do better in this kind of environment. Yes, there's so much there, but your point about trust and the erosion of trust and that it comes back to to bite you, I suppose. The other side of that is whether this is the media, I don't know, whether it's just kind of in us all, the truth seems to be less interesting <laughs> than the simplicity of lies. You know, how do we, uh, and I'm back to leadership again here, how do we make the truth more interesting for people? How do we get the more complex, nuanced, as you say, you know, whether it's science or, you know, the, the complexity of the situation, how do we communicate those things better than we are now? Hmm. Well, it's interesting. It's a very much a chicken and egg situation, you know, whereas if you oversimplify and tell lies, then you've just made the job a lot harder for yourself. Um, and I think this is, you know, the tangle that we find ourselves in, in the UK and in the US and sadly in other countries too. But I think we have to kind of keep sticking to the truth and not give up on it. And I also think that, you know, sooner or later, sadly, it appears to be later, governments are going to learn that actually there is so much transparency, whether they like it or not, that it is so easy or so much easier than it's ever been to find out what's really going on that while there may be a short-term attraction to lies, it's just going to backfire. And real leadership is about being able to tell hard truths and gaining respect for doing so. I mean, one of my kind of hobby horses at the moment is that 
I don't think we've been very honest on the subject of diversity. We've been set, companies have been saying and governments have been saying for about 30 years, yes, we all believe in diversity. We all know it's good for us. We're all committed to it. And this is the tide that that lifts all boats. And I've said that too. And I think that the the hard truth, which we haven't delivered, is that's true when we get there. But between where we are and where we need to reach for real equality of opportunity is going to be what I think of as a kind of valley of sacrifice, which is there are going to be people in the majority who suddenly see that there aren't as many seats at the top table for them as there were that getting from a place where we don't want to be to a place where we do want to be involves and will require some selflessness. And I think that if we were honest about this, we could actually make progress faster in saying, okay, this is where we are. We say this about diversity. So here's the deal. We need everybody to nurture successors who do not look like themselves whether men are are helping to develop female leaders or white men are helping to develop, um, you know, BAME leaders or whether able-bodied leaders are helping to develop disabled leaders. You know, if we all committed to doing that, we would make real change at a much faster rate. But that means we have to sacrifice the comfort of our own biases. It means we have to, instead of reaching out to people who are like ourselves, make the extra effort of reaching out and having real conversations with people who are not like us. But I think that can become an inspiring mission if we talk about what the end game is and what's in it for everybody when we get there. But until we tell the truth about diversity, I don't think we'll make progress. And I think exactly the same thing is true on climate change. You know, I was horrified when I heard Caroline Lucas when being asked, you know, wouldn't dealing with climate change require great sacrifice? Said, no, it's not a sacrifice to have clean air and clean oceans. Well, I, I mean, I get that. But between where we are and having clean air and clean oceans and a stable climate, People are going to have to give up things that they really love. They're going to have to change how they eat, how they live, how they drive. And that change is going to be difficult for people. And I think saying that we can have great change and not change anything is a lie. And real leaders, I think, will acknowledge what's going to have to happen, but inspire people with why it needs to happen. Well, Margaret, your your ability to tell those uncomfortable truths and to, to be so forthright was why it's such a pleasure to have this conversation with you. We've almost run out of time, but I've got, got one more question for you. Um, and I suppose it, it links to your book, Uncharted. Uh, I'm thinking back when my son was six, he brought home one of those little calendars, you know, that they do at school and uh, it's your Christmas present. And it had on it something like a wish for a wish for myself, a wish for my family, a wish for the world. And I seem to remember the wish for my family was I wish all my family were nice. <laughs> but if I uh, ask you to look out five years into the future, into that uncharted territory and say as a thank you for this conversation, if I could give you 
one wish, however small, for the future, that something that we can learn from this extraordinary difficult period that we're going through now, Mm. what would it be? Well, I wish we just all get better at asking better questions. Um, You know, I guess I'd wish for more curiosity to talk to the people who aren't like us, to ask questions that are about lived experience that we don't have. I mean, one of the reasons I really just love the work that I do is interviewing people and mentoring people gives me a license, if you like, to ask very direct questions. And I learn from it all the time. And one of the things I learn is, wow, my experience is not like everybody else's experience. And yet I'm very surprised, you know, that people say to me, well, you ask such good questions. And I think, well, yeah, but that's because that's what I do. And, and doesn't everybody do that? And clearly the answer is, is no. So I wish we could all retrieve that curiosity we all were born with, use it more, and be prepared to have much more honest, open conversations with people who are not like us. That's a great place to end, Margaret. And, and you also saying you love what you do. One of the questions I didn't have time to ask you was, you know, how can we laugh more and enjoy our work more? And, and that's something that comes across so powerfully. And when you speak and uh, in conversations like this is that you love what you're doing. Thank you so much for giving us time today for this podcast and to say that we will put a link to Margaret's website with this podcast so that you can find her books, her talks and so on. Thank you for a wonderful and curious conversation. <laughs> We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Do follow up with any links in the accompanying email and please do let us have any comments or further thoughts you may have as a result of listening. Stay safe and remember to recommend the program to anyone you think will enjoy it. We're back live in November 2021. You've been listening to another production from Solid Gold Podcasts.